90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, pretty good. Uh, I've been doing a lot of lab maintenance this week, exchanging helium in our uh, magnetometer. That's always exciting. So, Lab maintenance is always good. You can't do research. You're, uh, you're down yeah. for maintenance. And yeah, pretty much. Fix so. everything that broke in the last five years, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, basically. We've been down for quite a while. We've got some issues, but uh, we're getting it taken care of, so that's nice. My students are excited to get back to work. Oh, very nice. Mm-hmm. What's up with you? Oh, preparing uh, lots of talks and actually getting ready to do some new certification on LabVIEW. Oh, I, uh, don't, so that's... I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a graphical programming system that a lot of uh, labs use for their data collection processes. And unfortunately, you know, it's mostly developed on Windows now. It used to be a I... Mac uh, Mac platform, but now pretty much everything happens on Windows. Oh, uh, <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I actually had to make a purchase this week, <gasps> and <laughs> I uh, I bought a Microsoft <laughs> Surface. <Yes. laughs> that is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm going to need you to get a picture with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that made my day. You're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, I knew you would like that. Uh-huh, uh, it is uh-huh. it is used. I bought it from an undergrad here, <laughs> but uh, it will hopefully do the trick because I didn't want to spend over a thousand dollars on a Windows computer to be able to do this course. Uh, so ah. this will hopefully let me do the the job. And the pin is pretty nice, I will say. Uh, yeah, it's pretty spectacular. Um, it's a lot better than the chat script. I will say that as well. <laughs> Yeah, it actually looks like my handwriting. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, it actually works. Oh, man, I can't wait to hear how much you love it in the coming weeks. <laughs> well, I can already you. tell you the whole new Windows 10 menu system is just completely goofy. Yeah. <laughs> you get used to it, though. It's <laughs> it's quite spectacular. Oh, yes, this is wonderful. <laughs> you're, you're right. That was shocking and... <laughs> <laughs> yep, so we'll get to do some comparisons at some point. Great, uh, great. But we're actually going to talk tech for pretty much this entire show, I think, which should uh, be yeah. fun for you. Yeah, that's uh, probably all the all that I have to add is my excitement at your Windows <laughs> tablet. But uh... <laughs> So we actually have a special guest joining us today. Uh, so everybody welcome Martin Pratt to the show. How are you doing, Martin? Hi, how's it going? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Thanks very much. Doing good, trying to stay warm up here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. I'm over in New York right now, so uh, it's a little bit warmer out here, I think. But uh, yeah, it's a bit, uh, bit, bit, bit colder than St. Louis right now. Yes. <laughs> I think it got up to 80 degrees when I was in the field this weekend. So, oh, so uh, sorry, jealous. guys. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I actually got a sunburn. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I think this is how all of our winter shows are going to start now. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> yep. That's true. <laughs> But, well, Martin, could you tell us uh, a little bit about your background and how you got to what you're doing now? Uh, it's, a, it's a long story. Um, so I started with a bachelor's degree at uh, University of Durham uh, in northeast England, which is actually very close to where I grew up. Um, I, I studied geology there for three years and then went on to do a master's at the University of Leeds for another year. And that was in uh, geophysics and atmospheric sciences, although I mainly stayed on the earth side of things. I didn't delve too much into the atmosphere um and then uh, at the end of that i thought well maybe a phd is what i need to do next and so 
my supervisor at least put me in touch with a couple of people over in the States um, and ended up at Wash U uh, and in St. Louis, for um, which I've been there ever since. Yeah, and you just defended, so congratulations. Thanks very much. Yeah, it's about three weeks ago now. Yeah. Nice. So you're just coming out of the post PhD haze, as I remember from my own defense. I'm guessing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's been a it's been a strange few weeks afterwards, but um, we've had a lot to do. I mean, obviously trying to trying to set up the new apartment up here in New York has been uh, been a major project. Yeah, I bet. Uh, so, what did you do for your PhD? Just as a little bit more background. Um, yeah, so um, my PhD is actually kind of broad. I mainly stayed within the realm of seismology, although pushed the boundaries of that a little bit. Um, my first project was looking at glacial seismology in Antarctica. Um, so the, one of the nice things about going to Wash U is that they have a very active um, field uh, uh, side of things. So we actually get to go into the field, deploy seismometers ourselves and collect our data, which is really nice. It gets us sort of in touch with where, where we're actually studying. Um, I then did a second project with um, Michael Y session at Wash U looking at um, seismic structure of Madagascar. Um, so we had deployment out there for a couple of years, looking at the, um, just looking at the crust, which hadn't really been studied before, um, and also the volcanism on the island, which is, um, which is sort of recent intraplate volcanism, sort of very, um, uh, not being very well understood up until this point. So we're really trying to sort of get a handle on uh, where to explore next with that. And then finally, um, I've been mainly looking at um, microseisms, sort of ocean-generated seismic noise, uh, and how they're generated in the Southern Ocean. Um, so using an array within Antarctica itself, um, we were able to tune that to look at uh, storm systems as they migrated all the way around the Southern Ocean, uh, hitting various land masses, and how the sea ice um, comes in and out and dampens the signals that we see within Antarctica, which has been pretty cool. So... Yeah, and that's that's kind of led me up to where I am today. Wow, that's uh, that is quite a diversity of projects. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so, how much field experience did you did you get? Where all did you get to go when you were doing these seismic deployments? Um, so I did two seasons down in Antarctica for a grand total of about three months. Um, wow. Uh, the second year we had um, a deep field camp, so we got to go way away from any of the uh, main bases down there. And we actually camped for about three or four weeks, um, cooking our own food. There's only about four of us there as well, so we had to really get on with our the people that we were working with. There's really nowhere else to go but the camp, so uh, it's really hard to get away from people, surprisingly enough. Um, but while we were there, we also did a lot of skidooing and just driving around. I think we clocked about 1,000 miles in the season just, just driving around on the ice. Um, and then... For the Madagascar project, I, I was only actually there for the service, um, an installation of about 10, 10 instruments. So I was there for about six weeks or so, um, mainly in the north of the island, driving around in the back of a truck, not really seeing too much in the way of wildlife. I think we see, saw a few chickens, but that was about it. Um, and that was mainly just digging holes and uh, deploying instruments um, around the island. Yeah, that, that's been about, about the extent of my fieldwork here at Washi, which is, which is where I am now. So, 
that's really cool and unique because I feel like so many times, you know, we get all this data, especially in geophysics. No mm -hmm. offense, guys. <laughs> but you don't, like, understand about where it comes from. And obviously, I'm a field person, so I'm... I think that's a really unique experience, and it's yes. super awesome. Yeah, it is one of the main reasons why I came to Wash U was their field field courses that they have. So, John's made me go berry seismometers before too, but it was nowhere near as cool <laughs> as Antarctica. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was in Oklahoma, and you could feel the small earthquakes under you while you were deploying the seismometers. That was that was kind of fun. That is yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it is also neat to go in the field because you also see. Um, you know, and you just download a bunch of data and look at it. You're like, oh, well, this instrument's misaligned. You know, what were they thinking? Mm -hmm. And then you realize that somebody is leaning into a hole with a stick on top of the hole and a brunton <laughs> yep. trying to orient the seismometer, yeah. and it becomes a little more clear. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Even more so when it's probably like minus 30 out as well. So, <laughs> Yeah. So for – I know in your PhD, uh, you gave a talk last year at the Seismology Student Workshop that mm -hmm. we talked a little bit about. Uh, you've done all kinds of neat visualization, and it seems like geophysics is a place where we're really pushing visualization right now, because there's a lot of problems trying to visualize 3D data, 4D data, uh, and these really complex data sets. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I know you've done some stuff, and I thought we could just kind of go through some of the, the tools that we like to do that, mm -hmm. other than, you know, trying to draw something with the sketch tool in PowerPoint. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't don't leave paint out of this too, okay? You gotta oh, start. Yes, you gotta start somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> so, what are some of the tools that you found really useful when you were working on at your data sets? So, I'm my main interest in, in in this visualization side of things sort of stemmed from a side project that I was trying to do in Madagascar, where I was trying to um, understand which um, earthquakes were generating um, seismic wave paths that went through the lower mantle, um, just close to the core, um, and passed through um, this large low-velocity province um, at the bottom of the mantle. Um, so I found it really hard to actually try and find um, a visualization tool that would be able to do both of these things. Um, so I was able to download models from a certain website. I was able to calculate out ray paths with a different tool. I was so trying to combine those two together was something that was a real issue. And I thought, well, why not just start seeing if there's a way around this? Which led me into um, trying to find out the tools that were able to deal with large data sets. Um, a lot of like the, the calculation packages that we generally use, things like MATLAB or um, other such tools, have a visualization packet installed. But they tend not to be able to render um, the visualizations very well, especially when it comes to a lot of points. So trying to go to a more specialized um, visualization package um, proved the way to go. And uh, what I wanted to do is to also try and keep things as simple as possible, which led me down towards the Google Earth side of things. So using their environment to try and adapt it to be able to display lower mantle velocity provinces, um, such as you have beneath Southern Africa, but also be able to project how a ray path passes through that province from the earthquake to our seismic stations in Madagascar. So I know Google Earth, I mean, I've had a little bit of experience using some Python packages mm -hmm. and writing out uh, KML files, which are keyhole markup language, I think, yep. before yep, Googlebot keyhole. Yep. Uh, but all that's been 
has just been I'm putting points on the earth and maybe some information in a pop-up balloon. But Absolutely. what you did was significantly more complex. Um, <laughs> well, it was still just writing KML scripts, um, but mainly just changing a few different aspects of it. Um, so essentially, Google can deal with about three different things, which are points, lines, and polygons. So what you can do is you can create lines, which can symbolize ray paths, or you can create points, which symbolize earthquakes, or polygons, which can represent surfaces, say isosurfaces of shear velocity in the lower mantle, or a subduction zone, um, high velocity slab, or one of these one of these features. Um, and so by then trying to scale everything to take use of the make use of the space around the earth itself, you can then create your own little environment from which you can then project all these things through. And well Google Earth doesn't let you look it doesn't let you the surface, inside right? the earth. That, that's why we ended up having to go outside of the outside of the earth and scaling everything so it's really big. Um, so it does change your viewpoint slightly. And this is one of the problems with a lot of these virtual globes is that getting under the surface that it wants to look at um, is, is really tricky. And it's something that you just have to work around. So you're projecting the features from underground in basically in the atmosphere in yep. Google Earth, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so the the really sort of local features you can sort of scale down so it's really close to the surface of the Earth, but the really big, large mantle or even core visualizations that you want to project have to be like way out there. So. <laughs> I love how now we're just ignoring the atmosphere so much that mm -hmm. <laughs> we're just inverting, you know, the core onto it because it's yeah. useless for... <laughs> most geological needs that's yeah. right <laughs> so were there limitations with google earth because uh, i've put i don't know a few tens of thousands of points on google earth before and saw it kind of slow down a little bit so did you have issues with it getting laggy yes um <laughs> short answer yes um well i mean ten thousand points is about uh at least an order of magnitude more than what matlab can can deal with or something like that so it it is a lot um it, it renders a lot faster than than these these smaller visualization packages which is nice um but yeah once you start putting in tens of thousands of points or models or say slab interfaces or things like this then then yeah it can start sticking um a lot um there's a few there's a couple of other issues one of which was like if you if you project like icons like the balloons or something like that um sometimes they don't appear quite in the in the order that they they should be so uh one that should a, a a balloon that should be behind actually appears in front or something like that but there's there's ways of getting around that using things like 3d models collider 3d models um and importing them into kml that way so um there's just generally a solution and it, it just takes a little bit of exploration and probably a little bit more coding. So, I mean, what did you use to do a lot of the the glue scripting on this and making the KML files? Did was it a Python thing? Was it a MATLAB thing? How it was a it was a MATLAB thing when I started it. Um, it is it is a um, something that I'd like to rectify in the future. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, open source is is magical. Um, 
but yeah, so right now everything is pretty much written in MATLAB, and there's a there's I, I made like a GUI interface to sort of be able to draw on different data sets all together in one one sort of very simple layout uh, that draws down things like focal mechanisms or slabs from SLAM 1.0 or um, just latest earthquakes and plot them through time as well as space, which is um, really nice. So did you have to write your own focal mechanism plotting bit or has somebody already done that? Oh, well, I, I, I wrote my own little um, model, little, little focal sphere, which you're then able to rotate and, and, and um, yeah, adjust its orientation uh, within the KML itself. So you can just use one model and just repeat it. Okay. Yeah. Man, and I thought Paleo Mag was magical. Like, this is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can put a like an image into Google Earth, but mm-hmm. that's uh, that's the extent of. Well, my... that 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 that's one other thing that I'm trying to sort of include is that um, you can do all these like depth slices with your tomography models, um, but you can actually you can put one of these slices in as a layer within within the KML. And then stack them on top of each other, so each depth slice is a different layer within your model. And then you can adjust, you can tie each of those slices to the to the time slider. So instead of going through time, you're actually just going through depth, and you're able to sort of project it through that way, which is kind of neat. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. that is actually because that's actually making it tangible. The time mm-hmm. depth thing that you yeah. talk about all the time, but can't actually touch. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So have you tried going through Google Earth uh, with any of like the, the 3D mice or 3D manipulation tools Ooh. that are out there? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd love to have a 3D mouse, actually. I see, I see the, uh, they, they come into my price range now. So, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> about $100, yeah. you can pick up a basic one now. Yeah. So uh, I don't even know what this is. So for great radio, I'm holding the 3D mouse up to, God. Of to the Skype window. Yeah. Uh, but that yeah, they're, they're, help me. <laughs> they're relatively cheap, and it's basically a uh, a little piece of rubber that sticks up that you grab, and you can push away from you or towards you uh, or lift up or push down, and it manipulates the 3D object on the screen like you were holding it. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. Great. Yeah, um, there's a one of the com- one of the big tech conferences. I think it was like Google I/O. They had um, had one of these gesture devices that you could then sort of push into your computer screen or make a grab and grab the earth and, and do all these, these sort of gesture-based things just in midair. Which oh, is wow. A, yeah. So these are like legit flight simulators from way back, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. But I'll have to put a link in the notes, too. Uh, a while back, I saw somebody, HTML5 and JavaScript now are so ridiculously fast. Mm-hmm. Somebody had written a plugin. I think it was in Chrome uh, for the Chrome browser, where it would use your laptop speakers, play a tone above our hearing range very loudly, and then you would move your hand above your laptop keyboard, and the mic on your screen would pick up the Doppler shift from your hand moving and let you scroll that way. That's wild. Wow. <laughs> so you didn't actually have to have uh, any of the devices like the Leap or any of the mm. gesture devices. It wasn't very accurate, but it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so you're just flapping your hands in front of your computer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> this is brilliant. <laughs> this is how far we've come. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So, I mean, there are some other ways that people have been trying to visualize 3D things. Uh, 
I know there's a tool called Paraview that I've had very limited experience with. Basically, somebody showed it to me, and I said, that looks really neat. But did you have any experience with that? Um, I've had a very small amount of experience with Paraview. I, I went to um, an Iris workshop um, where we went through a, a few visualization tools. Um, Chuck Amon was there, went through some of his um, pet peeves. Um, <laughs> and uh, Gary Pavlis from... Um, went through some of the uh, aspects of Paraview that you could do, you could use. And right. that, that, that had sort of earth models in three dimensions, um, subducting slabs, all this, all this jazz. And I, I found it, it was, it was, it was interesting and cool and looked very nice. Um, unfortunately the, the learning curve was a bit steep for me at the time. Um, so I, I went and tried different things to, to get around that. Um, but there, there are there are a few alternatives from that. I mean, um, uh, there's, there's, there's a new uh, G-Plates platform. Um, I don't know if you saw that link in the notes. Um, but this has sort of recently been, been largely developed, um, mainly because they switched to using Python. As their as their as their programming language, um, right. but they they've been including lots of different um, data sets now. Um, they used to just do plate tectonics, but now they're starting looking at um, paleomag stuff, earthquakes, tomography, all this within a within a sort of virtual globe environment, which is kind of neat. So I, I'm pulling up, I'm not going to try to download it because it would probably no. kill our Skype call here, <laughs> uh, but I'm looking at G-Plate, some of the screenshots on their website, and this looks like it could be really interesting to use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I've had a little bit of a play around with it, but it did crash every now and again. Uh, yeah, that's the that's the problem, because you just said PaleoMag. I've seen G-Plates before, but yeah, yeah. I've never had a system that can totally yeah. be okay with it. So yeah. this is interesting <laughs> that they switched to Python. Mm -hmm. And I will yeah. be downloading this newest one to see how that goes. Yeah. Um, it seems like this is, in geosciences in general, I mean, atmospheric too, it's like two different problems, right? So it's taking all this 3D data and, you know, when you go to like GSA or AGU, you see these like big globes that are projecting all this data on it. So it's either that problem, getting that mm -hmm. data projected onto this 3D thing, or it's looking on your 2D, you know, screen at this 3D data. They seem like sort of two different problems, but all to visualize the same stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um. <laughs> so, like, I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's like, are, do you want to like go to the museum and use it, or do you want to sit in your office and use it? <laughs> and so, I don't know. Um, there's been some really impressive, um, you know, 3D visualization things. I know we've talked a little bit before about some of them, but so I know that John loves, you know, 3D printing and stuff, but I haven't really seen 3D screens. I know we just made a technology uh, enhanced classroom at our um, building on campus and we have a mm -hmm. 3D television, mm. but has any of this translated into, into that realm yet? I think the folks over that at uh, Keck Caves have some, uh, some scripts that are supposed to let you use these 3D screens. That's a UC Davis group. Uh, I'm not too familiar with how well it works, but one of our students uh, here and 
uh, former guest of the show, I think one of our first guests actually, Nick Holshue, has just uh, shown a few of us a little GMT script that he came up with where he can make left and right eye images in GMT and then use a stereo viewer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is kind of a, I mean, it's an old trick, you know, we did it in structural geology. Yeah. (laughs) Looking at aerial photos. Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But 3D printing is actually a little bit of a tricky one. For the Earth, I haven't really seen a lot of good 3D prints that make sense. Mm. Uh, yeah, for Earth I, structure. Yes, yeah, so I've actually started looking at that. Our, our GIS uh, group at WashU have just bought themselves a 3D printer, and they've been spending the last uh, sort of four or five months trying to get a handle on how to use it. Um, it's it's kind of interesting. It's got it's able to inject two different materials, so mm-hmm. it was a support support structure and a a, a main uh, plastic that they use for the actual model itself. So one of the things you can use for the support structure is um, something that dissolves in like water or acid, uh, just a weak acid, and that allows you to build these sort of slightly more complex uh, models, which may be uh, a better bet for um, getting more convincing Earth structure. Um, I've I I sent them an attempt at um, trying to um, trying to do some mantle ISO surfaces of, of shear velocity. Um, in th- sort of the whole earth as well including like the plate boundaries on the surface making the mantle hollow and having a core in the middle of it that's solid um, and I I think I've yeah I, you may have seen a, a photo of, of what happened so far this is great radio again um, <laughs> but it's uh, it's certainly very much a work in progress um, but uh, we're, we're pretty hopeful that we'll be able to get something more convincing very soon yeah, I know it was the so the printer that we have doesn't have the support material, mm-hmm. uh, so we have to print the supports out of plastic yeah. and then snap them off and sand. And uh, one of our groups here that does a lot with uh, little plankton has been taking some of their microscope images uh, and blowing them up and getting three D prints of what these things look like. Yeah, uh, for outreach, it's kind of cool. But I'm really curious to see where it's going to go in the next. I don't know, maybe five years, because in the last five years, it's gone from nobody has a 3D printer to a lot of people have 3D printers in their homes now. Yeah. I mean, John's had one for like 10 years, but... <laughs> no, not that long. <laughs> <laughs> not that long at all, actually. Uh, so when are you going to get your Shannon, 3D print your oh, uh, Paleo man, Mag I'm... core holders? <laughs> yeah, man, I'm waiting for this where I can have the two different media, so you'll be jealous of our 3D printer. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. And, well, I know Google is also uh, trying to promote some more tools other than Google Earth. Uh, I know they, they've killed the Google Earth or Maps plugin in the mm-hmm. web browser yeah, the recently. Google Earth, yeah, Google Earth plugin is now deprecated. It's, it's gone. Yeah. And so is this something that they're going to try to replace with Earth Engine, maybe? Or is um, Earth Engine going to stay out of the 3D realm? I think it, it seems at the moment to stay out of the 3D realm. Um, what a lot of the people at Google Earth have done is actually shift over to Esri um, and look at ArcGIS Earth, which is a developing platform. They just released their first um, version, uh, Earth 1.0. Um, <laughs> and it's it's pretty basic right now, but um, it's definitely going to be a, a, a tool to keep an eye on in the future, particularly as it's obviously uh, tied in very closely with the other um, ArcGIS platforms like ArcMap or ArcScene. Um, and the ability to measure stuff in 3D is something that um, would be really exciting to 
to be able to get a hold on. Hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna have to check that out. I don't know. I know it's a really expensive thing normally the Esri software, but a lot of universities yeah. have a site license. Yeah. So actually, Arcadeth is free. Oh. Yep. Wow. So okay, well, I'm gonna you, destroy you have, our internet connection yes. again. It, it it only works <laughs> on Windows though, so. <laughs> Um, yes it it, it is free you need an email to download it but um they are actually saying that they're going to produce something for mac and as well so it's uh it's going to be multi-platforming eventually yeah (laughs) well are are you a mac martin i am a mac i'm afraid Uh, yeah well thank you for being apologetic about it (laughs) that's okay you know you when you do real computing sometimes you have to use a mac and uh sometimes you need that command line it's uh yeah Exactly. <laughs> um, I'll just stick here and uh, just play with Google Earth and not worry about that. Um, Earth 1.0, that's fantastic. I mean, that's mm-hmm. right up the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy lines, I guess. It seems like, <laughs> like we I all think, know what happens to yeah. Earth 1.0, right? <laughs> the Vogons get us, guys. Come on. <laughs> uh, so did, did you put Whirlwind in? Uh, I did, yeah. That was, that was um, sort of other more open source virtual virtual globes so there's a couple of others like nasa whirlwind or um there's been a variety of other more basic applications um that people have developed so yeah the only reason i put whirlwind in was because it's open source um which is obviously nice uh, yeah absolutely i mean open source as you said earlier is is magic it's the way to go <laughs> it seems and how yeah. all of our reproducible science is going mm-hmm. yeah so Shannon's supposed to be learning Python at some point in her future. Me too. <laughs> I hate it when I hate it when we do these tech shows because I get all excited about everything and then I have like fifteen like things open on my computer about like, all this like <laughs> so I've got G plates and then I've got Worldwind and I've got <laughs> Earth 1.0 down here. So uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and there are some other standard plotting tools that we use. Uh, other than Google Earth, but they're not really, as far as I know anyway, 3D capable. Like like uh, the generic mapping tools, GMT. I, can you do 3D with that? Uh, you can do 3D with GMT. It's um, my uh, old knowledge about GMT because I moved away from that a while ago. Um, it it can do 3D, but I I had a lot of trouble trying to do it properly and well, and. Uh, being able to be interact with it is is something that is is something that I think that <laughs> require is required for three D a lot of the time. Being able to move around and sort of create the illusion of three D requires that motion to go around it and be able to see everything. Um, so, yes, you can you can use GMT, but uh, there are better platforms I think for three D. Yeah, and GMT is in itself kind of enigmatic. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know MATLAB is supposed to be developing in their next version some hooks into GMT, mm-hmm. and I would be very curious to see how they're going to handle the flag B option. Uh, ah. Anybody that's used GMT knows it's <laughs> it's awful in terms it's of its awful. complication. Yeah, <laughs> and, totally, it's totally awful. <laughs> uh, Greenwich Mean Time, right? That's what we're talking about. <laughs> but uh, I know that. Uh, I've seen a couple people where they have something very, some basic 3D structure that they want to show and maybe don't have a way to have something interactive, say at a poster mm-hmm. uh, or during a talk, 
Yeah. But they take two slightly different angles and make an animated GIF where it just rapidly goes back and forth between those two angles. And you can kind of get the 3D illusion. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And that's, that's, that's probably a good way of doing it in a PowerPoint, actually. I hadn't really thought about that, but... Um, certainly, if whenever I uh, and whenever I try and do a three D in a PowerPoint, then it, it's generally a movie, and you've got to keep it moving. Otherwise, it uh, otherwise you ruin that illusion of three D. Yeah, and I mean, there are some tools. Uh, I don't know what you use uh, ScreenFlow is the one I use to if I'm doing any kind of manipulation of data on screen and want to capture it as a movie mm-hmm. to show. Uh, it just lets you do a screen capture and then go back and post and edit things down a little bit. Right. Yeah, I'm 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 still very basic with um in terms of screen capturing. I still just use QuickTime to do that, um, but uh, it 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 does what I need to do, and often sort of the simplest ways are the best way of doing things. So, I'm a big Snagit fan. I'm gonna uh. throw that out there. <laughs> Snagit. Yeah, I finally broke down and paid for it. It's uh through TechSmith, and it's about fifty bucks. Well, the last time I bought it, it was, but man, it does everything. It's pretty fantastic. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> We'll put links in the show notes to all of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some so tech you didn't links. know about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know that some of those screen capture applications, ScreenFlow is one of them that, man, it's it, it can highlight your mouse and highlight clicks and show keystrokes and all this other stuff that I've never used. Uh, uh, yeah, I, Snagit has all those capabilities yeah. too, and it's pretty impressive, I think. So I'm a big fan. It's one of those things where you don't use it for a while. Because I I will make a movie before an AGU talk or something like that, and learn how to use the tool, and then next AGU it's like starting from square zero again. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Twelve <laughs> updates later. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I don't know, Martin. Are there any other tools that you really enjoy using or want to to point people to? Uh, I think we've been through quite a few of them so far. <laughs> um, I it really just depends on the um. The audience you're going for, I think, um, if if you're trying to sort of entice people into what you're studying, there may be something a bit more spectacular, like a Google Earth or a. Um, one thing I didn't put on this list was a very old bit of software by Microsoft called uh, Worldwide Telescope. It's mainly developed for planetariums. Hmm. Um, it's all open source now, which is nice. Um, so something like that is is. It provides the spect- spectacle to get like a, a very general audience uh, involved in what you're studying. Um, but if you're going for like general science, then yes, you kind of need to use more um, technical programs like PowerView or or eventually probably ArcGIS Earth would be the way to go. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's a good point that when you're doing something like outreach, it's too often that you see people flash up a complicated plot mm-hmm. and a map with all kinds of things on it that nobody in the audience gets. Yeah. Uh, so the flashier, the better for sure, I think. Yeah. It seems like all of these programs are going back. It seems like ArcGIS really a long time ago had stuff right, you know? It seems like that's sort of a platform that's stayed around through all of this. And I know I always like encourage my students to take ArcGIS class because mm-hmm. I feel like that's one of the you know, the main things that they could translate into a bunch of different tool sets. Absolutely, absolutely. ArcGIS has, has applications throughout very, very wide range of industries um, in the private sector as well as in academia. Right, uh, which, I'm, which I'm always asking John, like, you know, what do I do to learn this computer thing? What do I do to learn this yeah. computer thing? And um, I was excited to see you write ArcGIS in here because I really think that is, for geoscientists especially, 
it's certainly definitely worth taking. Exactly. You really need to have this skill moving forward, just like you said, Martin, no matter what you know industry you're going to go into. So yeah. I think that's one of those good first steps. If you don't know where to start, just go to the Esri website and start there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I used to say that GIS capability made you more marketable than the competition when you were going to look for jobs. And now I think mm-hmm. it's you need it to be marketable. Exactly. Yes. yes. No, I agree. Um, yeah. And so we, we talk a lot about visualization on this show. In fact, I think we've had a couple. Well, yes. it's been more about posters and that kind of thing. Uh, the same thing. <laughs> and yeah, so we know about uh, our pet peeves. But I'm very curious. Uh, what are some of your visualization pet peeves? Visualization pet peeves. Ooh. <laughs> um, bad, bad use of 3D always gets me. Um, people that hide behind it and sort of don't explain what they're actually trying to show using a flashy 3D 3D diagram is is kind of a pet peeve. Um, yeah. yeah, unnecessary 3D is, is is probably the highest on the list. Um, that's, that's hilarious because we're so low tech in my um, <laughs> in my research group. I feel like, and we have someone that made this like you know 3D video of a core that they had just visualized, right? Mm-hmm. And so. I mean, it's really neat, actually, and he used it quite well, but that's kind of one of the things I thought. It was, like, so impressive that we had this PowerPoint movie that just showed this core spinning around where you could, you know, achieve that by yeah. actually holding the core, you know, as opposed <laughs> to having to put it into the PowerPoint. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's a that's a pretty good pet peeve. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that and the rainbow color spectrum. Always. <laughs> I, I know you've brought yeah. up on this before, but... Uh, yeah. Yes, jet good, kills. Good don't old use jet. It. <laughs> <laughs> well, and on, on color too, I see a lot of times, I don't know if we've mentioned this in the past, maybe, maybe not, um, but it's almost like bad use of 3D where people will use something like Y position and color or color and size to encode the same variable. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Unnecessary complication hey, of the problem. You back yes. off of my Excel diamonds and squares, okay? <laughs> With, with, with sh- the drop with shadow. shadow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We both went there, Shannon, instantly. That was brilliant. So. <laughs> that was brilliant. <laughs> yes, you can always tell Excel default plots. Uh. <laughs> Man, that one paper we had, I can't even believe that. That was even egregious to me. <laughs> and I love Excel. <laughs> Ooh. Hey, yeah. Talk about programs that handle large amounts of data very poorly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know, Martin, is there anything else you wanted to add before we head on to the next segment? Uh, I, th- I think that's about it. I think you've, you've exhausted my, <laughs> my experience <laughs> of uh, visualization tools. <laughs> well, and also, are any of your uh, visualizations available where we can link them in for folks to see? Uh, actually, yes. I have a GitHub page, um, which I'll send you the link to. And... Um, yeah, everything's everything's there. All my it's mainly written in MATLAB, which um, I know some people may not have, but um, eventually it will get transitioned into something a bit more open source, which uh, will will help people a lot more, I think. But and since it's in GitHub, I do have to ask: Did you use version control for a lot of your work during your PhD? Uh, I I I learned it while I was doing my PhD. <laughs> okay. And thought it was a it was a it was a better better way of going through things. But yeah, uh, instead of like having endless folders of, um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Version one, version two, final version, you know? <laughs> final, final. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Okay, well, we'll link all that in. Uh, but that means it's time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Still no cowbell. God, I know. I don't even know where the darn cowbell is now. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's buried somewhere. Yeah, probably. Under all these papers I have to read. <laughs> so Martin picked a paper for us, and this is called MyShake, a smartphone seismic network for earthquake early warning and beyond from Science Advances. So Martin, do you want to tell us a little bit about what uh, what you thought was really interesting about this paper? Well, there's been a sort of um, a large increase in the number of smartphones recently. Um, and within each each of these smartphones is a tiny little accelerometer, um, which can record motion um, as as this as you move move the phone around. Now, what these people over at UC Berkeley have have thought about is actually trying to use these mobile mobile phones as a way of detecting earthquakes, um, which could prove very in, in sort of important with an early warning system, especially in areas of large populations. Uh, close to active fault lines um, and furthermore I mean this this is kind of uh, important is that there's there's places around the world that maybe don't have access to a large array of seismic networks or the ability to do early warning systems and the ability to try and detect earthquakes just by using a mobile phone which is very easy to get hold of um, may prove to be very valuable uh, in these uh, less developed countries so um this particular paper delves into the development of um, a piece of software um, which is available um, as an Android app um, that is able to sit on your phone while it's just resting or in your pocket that's able to detect uh, whether or not um, the phone is being moved by you or whether the phone is just um, sitting around um, listening to, the, to listening essentially to the earth. Um, so it uses a variety of different techniques and um, and then once it detects what it thinks it could be an earthquake, it send, sends off a little snippet of data to um, a central hub, which then connects that, that phone with various other phones, perhaps in your vicinity, uh, to whether or not you, you have in fact detected an earthquake or not. So um, that's kind of the gist of the paper, but um, if there's uh, more details we need to go into, then uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, we love details. Uh, <laughs> I thought that there was something that existed for um, to plug into your computer to do this as well. Is there not? Yes, there is. Um, okay. I think, again, the same group at uh, Berkeley okay. developed the system that could be attached to your house. Um, very, very simply. It's a very sim similar sort of device. It's just an accelerometer. You, I think you plugged into the side of your house and your, compu and your computer and is able to upload data very quickly to to a, to a network yeah that was um quake catcher i think is what they right. called mm -hmm. it yeah, yeah. That's right. yeah and so i would say probably in 2009 or so uh, we were on a field trip down the gulf coast and this was with one of the earlier versions of the iphone maybe the 3g even uh, we had several students set them out at different uh, distances and then we had the entire group of students jump at once with an app that recorded the accelerometers and even that large source and people being 
uh, pretty close to the phones. It was a really awful signal, and that's kind of where it stopped. But they have a plot in this paper that shows the response of modern phone accelerometers, and it's really impressive. It is, and it looks like it's going to get. It can only get better. Um, there's there's the noise level light now, which can appear to detect something that a magnitude five, five and a half earthquake within ten kilometers of where you're sat, um, right now. But possibly in the future, with high developed accelerometers, you could get almost the equivalent noise level to um, a current day accel- uh, strong motion sensor. Yeah, and I mean the the accelerometers that are in phones right now you can buy them on breakout boards and hook them to an arduino i mean there was an article in srl a few months ago now i think about this uh, doing activities with students and they're under ten dollars for the sensor mm. so. uh, yeah um, another thing too isn't it it's because the first question is how do you know it's an earthquake and not just other things that could shake your phone right and uh, the the app like talks to um lots of other information right to try to confirm that yeah so it runs yes it runs like a few different um statistical tests on two seconds worth of data every time so the phone itself um uses those tests to try and work out whether or not the, the phone is experiencing an earthquake or whether it's just been moved around uh by a human there'll be certain different frequency contents or amplitude content to that two seconds worth of signal um, if it gets a positive response, then it's then it uploads um, some data to to the main hub, which then connects it to other phones in its in its nearby neighborhood. Yeah, and and they also did some calibrations, uh, like having the phone sit on a basically a pier in a quiet basement for a month to get the noise level, and then putting them on a shake table, mm-hmm. and it was uh, Figure Three A. I really liked because they had one of the phones bolted down to the table which would not be the case for 99% of, you know, use. <laughs> and then they also had one uh, free on the table, and you can see that after a certain amplitude, uh, it looks like it clips, but it's really just the phone sliding on the table. Yeah. yeah. And so I yeah. guess from this, you could try to back out what the friction coefficient of the phone is, right? That's, that's, what, I was, that's what I was thinking. You could get, like, an iPhone case that has, like, a, a more sticky back to it. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> that's depending on your um, brand of OtterBox or whatever. That's Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, this is incredible. And I mean, they're using, uh, I guess this paper kind of hit all the buzzwords because it's got artificial neural networks in it. Yep. Uh, <laughs> whatever they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they seem to be an interesting thing that a lot of people are throwing at a lot of problems. Yeah, it's very fashionable right now. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And there are some 3D plots in here. I don't know what you thought of those, but figure 4D. Uh, <laughs> no. No. Yeah. It's, it's all right. Excel graph there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that looks looks like MATLAB, probably. Uh, maybe could Python. Be. With, some, with some post-processing, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> this is incredible. Like, I love uh, like the new sort of... I mean, especially in geophysics and seismology, it seems like all the stuff that used to be like trash and noise is like what everyone is studying now and uh, absolutely really interesting <laughs> there's 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 all this data that people have just thrown out before and and it's now fair game oh, trying yeah. to work out it's, what it is it's kind of cool well in crowdsourcing science i mean it gets more people interested in the science which will hopefully translate into better science and more funding right oh 
exactly. Because, I mean, who didn't have that SETI app, you know, downloaded onto their computer and <laughs> back in the day? No? You guys didn't Oh, yeah. Okay. I, did. <laughs> I, d- I didn't, but I, I recently tried a, there's a, there's a Pulsar crowdsourcing, just trying to work out the size, like the size of the universe and how fast things are, how fast, how old the universe is just by crowdsourcing these Pulsar uh, data sets. Excellent. Yeah, so I guess that's another one of the buzzwords it hit, right? Was crowdsource. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This paper has it all, Martin. Good. good I work. know. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, it'll be great to see. And, you know, a few years ago, I would have said, well, there's not a lot of areas in the U.S. that we could test this in, but now there's Oklahoma. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you get like Definitely. some some Manitou fives out there, that's. Uh, yeah, I, and missed, I missed the one a couple of weekends ago. I was too far south, unfortunately, but I heard all about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I know there's efforts in California to do things like uh, stop commuter trains or shut off gas service valves and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this could possibly give you enough you know, seconds to tens of seconds warning, right? Yeah, so they actually um, did a few back-of-the-envelope calculations with what an early warning system such as this would actually, how that would help uh, folks in Kathmandu for the n- recent Nepal earthquake. Um, so that earthquake actually, the epicenter was outside uh, a few a few tens of kilometers outside of Kathmandu. Um, and if there was a similar such network of people with smartphones in the neighborhood, they could possibly have given folks in Kathmandu about 20 seconds um, warning before the, the main shaking wow. actually hit the town, um, which would be enough to at least get to a more stable part of your building um, and yeah, turn off uh, major uh, utilities such as like gas mains or electricity or, or trains and things like that. Hmm. You could even see that becoming automated too. Absolutely. Know, in the future when it gets down to it. So that, that could save quite a few lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We just need more reliable cell networks, I guess, or faster data transfer everywhere. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think that was a great pick for a fun paper. And uh, we really appreciate you joining us to talk about this because I know visualization and sensing things, all that's that's right up our alley, and it's a lot of fun to talk tech. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, yes. no problem. And, Shannon, if somebody wants to send us feedback, uh, how could they get a hold of the show? Well, you can do this in 2D at show at <laughs> don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, as always, we are on Twitter John is at Geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin, and we are at Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 